0: The corny dad thing. going. Oh yeah,
1: no. I mean, every every good podcast needs the the corny dad. So if you get that unlocked, then you know it's like y'all, y'all are gonna go far.
0: Well, like one, <laughs> one, once every other episode, I get something good in. So
1: ask your ratio. But yeah,
2: it, we're yeah. we're editing them all together. Best of the pod.
1: <laughs> yeah, the beauty of montage. Yeah, all of the uh, the, <laughs> the the mistakes go by the wayside, and you're just like. Edit all we have is hits that's right well
2: uh welcome back uh if you're just joining us you are listening to the roycast uh the world's only podcast about the uh smash hit hbo series succession uh my name is brendan i am joined by my co-hosts kate
3: hey guys
2: and gabby
3: hello everyone
2: uh we are also joined today by a friend, writer, critic bon vivant uh Danny Bose is here with us. Hello Danny.
0: Hello Brandon. Hello all. Welcome.
1: Thank you. Happy to have you. God, I am happy to be here
2: you're a, you're an erstwhile podcaster yourself, are you not?
1: Oh yeah no i I have a podcast. It's just on uh, quote unquote hiatus. But yeah, I have uh, the the problem of uh, broadcasting from an undisclosed location that makes it difficult to uh, record live with other people, and uh, and Skype is a, a mystery beyond my ken. <laughs> yeah,
2: so. yeah. All these all these jokes about undisclosed locations and being unable to record has me thinking that you're like communicating from some astral plane right now.
1: Well, I mean, you you hit the nail right on the head. I mean, that's what it is. You
2: know. Yeah, exactly. Um yeah. but from the but from the astral plane, you're able to to still get your HBO, thankfully. So how did HBO you? HBO first- comes
1: everywhere, even the astral plane. Yeah. <laughs>
2: so how, did, how did you first start watching Succession? How did you hear of it, and when did you start watching?
1: It was. Uh... A while before the show actually aired, I think it was like the, the like one of when they first started uh, showing the teaser trailers for it, I caught one and I didn't know anything about the show' was about. I didn't know you know like who had you know, like written it you know like I recognized you know the actors from the you know the, from the clips and stuff. but it looked like a parody of a prestige cable show. And I just started, like, firing off tweets about just like, oh, look at the prestige. And you know, it's like, look at all the prestige oozing from every pore. Oh, it's prestige. And it was just like, you know, just being an asshole. Um, and, and then so a few months later, uh, you know, I'd forgotten all about that. And then I saw, I was like, oh, fuck, that was actually a show. Because I hadn't realized, I, like, I still wasn't entirely sure that it wasn't like a parody that somebody else had done. You know about just like yeah, this is the new HBO show. It's just like like an algorithm programmed all the prestigious elements, and then I was like, "Oh fuck, it's actually it's actually a real show. It actually exists." All right, I'll watch the first episode, and I did, and I I I I, I, I don't know whether the irony sincerity balance had fully tipped at that point. But definitely about two or three episodes in, I was like, no, this is legitimately great. And I sincerely am just, like, all in on this. And it, it's, it's just, it, it's so fucking good. You know, it's just, like, it's just so fucking good. Yeah. Remember, yeah. That's, that's where I am now.
0: I, so many people have the same trajectory as, as you, Danny, including myself. Like, first step, what the fuck? And then, like, okay, this is amazing. I want to marry this show. And it deserves every Emmy possible
2: i remember talking to our our mutual friend jim uh oh, after showing it to him and he he what did he call it he said it was a big old sack of popcorn and
3: uh <laughs> talk about dad jokes oh <laughs>
2: uh, yeah jim is jim is the the father of us all um but uh yeah i mean that doesn't quite capture i think everything about it but yeah i mean it's just uh you know, it's fucking, it's firing on all cylinders at this point. You know, it's great to watch, you know, like a great show and it's prime. Um, so you were like a day one fly guy. Um, you know, was there an episode that you think like really clicked it for you? Uh,
1: I, I That's the thing is that I really can't pinpoint the exact moment that it happened. It's I more realized like that it had happened once it had, but I can't really trace it back to a specific moment. And it's like, think it speaks to the way that the show, it's like, it's possible to enjoy it on multiple different levels, and from, you know, it's it's, it's the sort of thing where it's like, it's a guilty pleasure that's also good, and I don't, you know, when part, I mean, I don't believe in guilty pleasures, but like, it's like, as, as a shibboleth standing and for what people define that to be and the way that people watch things when they're watching it in that mode. Um, But it's just like, it's it's something really remarkable about the show that it's possible to do that, to, like, experience it really intensely in so many different, like, you know, irony levels or without any irony or, you know, it, uh, it, it's just so rich and so detailed and, like, they know what the fuck they're doing, which is an underrated thing with TV because so often, like, you're watching TV and it's like, oh, these motherfuckers don't know what they're doing. Like, that was, you know... The, the experience of watching the last couple of seasons of Game of Thrones for one prominent example, it's like these dudes, they, they are panicking in a writer's room, uh, <laughs> like, it, 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 like sobbing in the corner, like, how the fuck are we going to do this? And it's like, there, there doesn't seem to be any such problem in the succession writer's room. Exactly.
2: A lot of
0: confidence. Yeah, an
2: incredibly, oh, yeah. incredibly confident show and i mean i wanted to talk to you a little bit danny about some of the performances on the show i was i was hoping to talk a little bit particularly about jeremy strong today but you kind of have like a like a theatrical background um so i, I wanted i wanted to ask you like kind of what you thought of like the acting on the show and some of your favorite performances if not especially characters and just like some of the acting that's happening on the show because there's some great acting happening here
1: oh yeah and it's it- and it's about that is that there are some, like, you can't look at any performance that stands out as being weak at all. Like, they're all very, you know, there is such, you know, marvelous work being done by the whole cast. And there are multiple different styles kind of coming into play against each other. And, different approaches, different processes at play. And that is one of the things that's actually, I think, contributes to a lot of the tension on the show. That there's a thing that was written about, I think, like while last season was going on, was that uh, Brian Cox and Jeremy Strong have two kind of like, uh, if I remember correctly, like different philosophies regarding rehearsal and preparation. Like, Brian Cox coming from, like, the British tradition of just, like, no, you just do the work and you just work your ass off, and it's like you prepare, 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 prepare. And Jeremy Strong coming from a more traditionally American uh, of acting, which is just, like, everything should be spontaneous and in the moment, and it's like you just kind of throw competing elements into the Petri dish and see what happens. But, uh, and, and the thing that with different material and on a show that had different uh, purposes in mind, like that could have been disastrous having those two styles, but you know, it's like the, it, the, the clash of the styles aids the text. And it's like, it's part of the purpose of the show, like having the two of them being at cross purposes, even in their processes and the way they prepare. And I think that that really like serendipitously, gives the show another layer of dramatic tension, which is, you know, to be, you know, like, oh the shit the joke around, because the show's funny as hell, but like being like, you know, serious, the the way that it just gets down to like the the kind of primal nature of drama and of conflict, that, that actually the fact that the two kind of, you know, two of the major forces on the show having that organic extra textual conflict just adds to the show and kind of, you know, gives it some of its special oomph.
2: Yeah, totally. Uh, I had pulled up this interview with Strong that he did um, with Variety towards the end of uh, the first season where he talks about uh, partnering with Brian Cox. And he goes, you know, Brian's a heavyweight. I'm very lucky. And he goes, "Uh, you know, I think I may have driven Brian a bit nuts refusing to rehearse and not wanting to interact. So this whole, like, kind of meth method piece of you know not wanting to interact sort of on the set you know before the scene is happening especially um and i think that's totally right it, it brings out this really interesting tension and the other show i find myself thinking of when you talk about like these like kind of different styles um you know sort of breaking on each other is uh, like the people versus oj simpson um i don't know if you mm-hmm. if, if, if you kind of know what i'm talking about there but a lot of different sort of acting approaches there too
1: yeah i didn't watch that show but i definitely know that 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 motley cast that they assembled, like, you know, has to be sort of like, like watching two different species of, you know, like in a zoo.
0: Yeah, Travolta's like on a totally different register. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I mean, he's a
1: wild card no matter what you're doing, because it's like, you know, like, which who the fuck is showing up when you cast that (laughs) guy?
3: The Scientology. (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> the Scientology jumped out.
3: That <laughs> some, was also brought up in this episode. Yeah.
1: <laughs>
0: if you recall, in the opening oh, yeah. scene <laughs> when uh, Ken, you know, tries to get real, you know, with his buddy, and uh, and he's, he's like, "I need to talk to you," you know. Anyways, we all know, but it, and then he goes, "What the fuck is it, Scientology?"
3: <laughs> anyway,
0: anyhow. <laughs> <laughs> full, cir- full circle oh. here. Always a
3: possibility with rich people. I mean, oh, yeah. you gotta bet that.
2: Yeah, Ken goes to some dark places, and he needs uh, he needs someone to show him the way out, and that person is Xenu. Uh, uh, so, you know.
1: just kind of the possibility that, like, at some point, season two, three, or whatever... Like, he literally might join the Church of Scientology at some point, you
0: know. Some
3: sort of, <laughs> yeah.
1: He's, he's going to get
2: into like uh, uh, Jack Dorsey's wellness routines. Um, oh, that's oh, what for I worry about with Ken. <laughs> <laughs> oh,
0: God. <laughs> Danny, your um, comments about, you know, just the different forces between Cox and. Um, Uh, strong, I I was reminded of something that I read, maybe in this Variety article, maybe in another one, and it's in a future episode, so I kind of hate to bring it up, but like in the final episode, Ken wasn't scripted to cry uh, at the very end, and he just starts sobbing, and I think, again, probably that actual real-life tension that crossed over, you know, you can really feel it.
2: Yeah, and there's other signs in that scene I think that it took maybe I don't know a different direction than what they had planned or it just like you know they or they just really didn't plan how it would be choreographed because I think particularly the final shot of that episode end of the season is sort of an odd one. It seems kind of like an arbitrary angle almost like they just like didn't they didn't quite have the angle that they thought they would to kind of close that out. It seems like an unplanned shot, the one that it fades out on but yeah, definitely uh definitely has kind of a, a spontaneous feel to it.
1: And that's a thing that just, like, not just on Succession, but in TV in general, just, like, the nature of the process, like, mandates that you have to balance, like, your original intent with uh, the outside forces that are also working on you. It's like, you know, you can have your plan, but plans go awry. You know, it's like the whole notion of, like, you know, the the chaotic departures from linearity where it's like, you know, outside forces are going to have an impact on what you're planning to do. Because, like, you know, creating TV shows over the course of so many years and with so many different people involved, you know, it's like, you can plan it out all you want to on the page, but it's like the, the ultimate result is going to depart from that inevitably and you need to be able to adapt to those, like, external influences and forces in order to have the thing. And I think that just from the way that the show evolved over the course of this one season, again, not to get ahead of, uh, of anything, but, like, the, it really does seem like they had the, the the creative team on the show, like, had a good sense of how to incorporate those different elements. It's like, oh, okay, we have two of our principal actors who, like, have wildly different uh, approaches to a performance fuck it we'll work with that you know and it's like if that's a sign of you know like a show that like you know it's like that the, there's there's promise that it'll continue to be good whereas like you know, i mean a lot of the shows that don't have that same sort of like fluid relationship with change and with evolution and with the outside influences tend to be like that, that's where they fall into the the troubles that, you know, it's like when you're watching the show, you're just like, oh, man, what the fuck are they doing? And it's like this, tr- oftentimes it's because they're adhering too closely to that original blueprint and refusing to, like, roll with, uh, you know, or, or refusing to admit that the plan is not foolproof. I guess. Is what yeah. Yeah. yeah, well, th-
2: there was a, there was an interview I, I listened to with Adam McKay recently that was done um, just ahead of the second season. It was quite recent for, it was like an IndieWire podcast. It was a very good interview, actually. I was very very impressed with it. Um, but he said a couple of things, I think, that kind of touch on that, which is that, um, you know, first of all, he talked about what we've talked about before on this podcast, which is this sort of, um, you know McKay has this as a director this style of kind of structured improvisation where you know they shoot the script but he you know he's always you know with every single setup he's going okay now let's let's try a different line why don't you try bringing something of your own to it um, and seeing you know where the cast can take things so I think that you know from day one because he directed the pilot they had sort of a looser um, sort of approach to things where they were open to, to input and ideas that would arise in the process uh, but he also talked about how you know Uh, the network, in this case HBO, did not put a lot of pressure on them to, you know, find big stars or anything like that. So they really took their time in the casting process to find the right people for each role. Like, there was nobody that was, like, pushed on them by the network um, or anything like that. So they they really felt, like, comfortable with the people they found in the process um, that were the right ones for these characters. And that really, I think, goes a long way in terms of finding actors that are going to be open to this particular approach. But we should dive into the uh, the episode, and I think you know because we are we do still want to do the recap thing. So uh, we got to talk about before we get to kind of you know the main event, since this is sort of a very choreographed and very structured episode, building to this big kind of set piece, as it were, um, in the second half. Um, we want to talk about some of the other subplots at first, so I figure we start with the fun stuff and talk about Greg and Tom, um, who are <laughs> uh, having a good time in this episode. You know, they've. Uh, uh, Tom is getting a phone call that the uh, the uh, death pit, as it were, has been dealt with for the moment, and uh, he is looking to celebrate uh, with his protege uh, slash uh, punching bag Greg. Uh, so they go off to enjoy uh, some fine dining. Um, Kate, what did you make of kind of the uh, the adventures of Tom and Greg in this episode? Does it look like they're having fun to you, or <laughs> what's going on?
0: Yeah. Uh, no, not at all. I mean, I think, uh, it, you as you said that, I was thinking, like, not Greg, and then also Tom is trying to convince himself. So, one of the first things I was thinking is, you know, uh, how food is kind of used as a mirror for like having wealth, right? Because, like, first, Greg goes out to eat with Uncle Ewan, who's in town, of course, for the board meeting unknowingly. But and, and he's just completely stuffed. First, well, actually, first he wants to go to California Pizza Kitchen and is told, uh, you know, <laughs> that that is actually not what he wants um, by Tom because you know that would be frowned upon by. Uh, the ultra wealthy. But anyways, so he's, he's just stuffing himself more and more. He has these two meals that he's utterly disgusted by, wants to stop eating, and they just keep shoving more and more food down his throat. And I just thought that there was some play there. And especially, of course, because he just got paid for the first time, um, just of the like, accumulation of wealth and how you know, Greg is this outsider character. We view him, we view the show through him more so than any other character. You know, to the ultra wealthy, they're like, you know, they want to acquire and eat more and more and just, you know, really get into hedonistic, you know, type things. And and Greg's, you know, pretty much disgusted by the entire effort. But the the real fun part is that. Tom trying to teach Greg how to be wealthy, which if you have to teach someone how to be live a certain way, you have to recognize that clearly there's a limited number of people that know how to live that way. And there's no intuitive process happening. And so with uh, one of the foods he was referencing eating Tom, he says, you know, I wanted to shit puke and come again, just kind of like, this overindulgence, and, like, is this supposed to be a good thing? So then he actually goes through the ritual of, like, here's what it's like to be rich. First of all, it's fucking great. Well, what we learn is they they eat a a fried songbird. Is that songbird? Is that correct?
2: Yeah. Fried, uh, braised, boiled, drowned in Armagnac, right? The Ortolan?
0: Yeah, the Ortolan. Right? And so I thought a th- few things about this. First, I was like th- thinking about based on some of the later scenes that also echo the the loneliness and including them being in the club, basically alone. Um, but you know, again, how being that rich, you know, they cover up their face, you know, they're eating alone. But of course, Greg or Tom does say that some people use the napkin over the head to mask the shame and others use it to heighten the pleasure and I and, and that and I I did wonder about that comment is is that like two different types of people do you think
2: I just think it's- the Ortolan thing is so funny because I mean there's that there's that tweet that went around recently from uh, Twitter user Alex Q Arbuckle, where he was like, you know, in recent years, Hannibal, Billions, and Succession have all featured characters eating ortolan and we get it! You know, uh, mm. it's, uh, it's just this thing that keeps showing up as this sign of extreme wealth, and I think the way they frame the scene with Greg, like, already being stuffed is really funny, because, you know, it's supposed to be this great seductive thing you can only experience when you're rich but greg is just like he just feels kind of (laughs) sick he just feels kind of bloated
1: (laughs) well it's what makes him such a great like pov character for like the audience to experience that world through because like you know most of the people watching the show they know what the fuck it's like to be that rich you know and it's like watching the show through the eyes of somebody who is also like you know is experiencing it for the first time and it's sort of like bemused and bewildered but it's like wait this is supposed to be cool we're eating a fucking songbird you know and it's like this this is this is fucked up you know <laughs> and, and and it and it serves as a good contrast too because i remember also the when, when when they when they had the scene on billions and in memory serves it was axe and wags like in axes like you know penthouse apartment and the two of them were just like ah being rich is fucking awesome and then on Billions, by contrast, it's a guy experiencing that same thing and being like, wait, it's a songbird? Wait, what's it? Was that its brains? Wait, what's it, what? And it's like, and it was like, you know, when people used to just be like, oh, yeah, Succession is just ripping off Billions. It's like, uh, you know, that one scene alone is enough to, like, set the two shows apart as far as, like, their approach on the world. Because I mean, we do not have to get in uh, about Billions. I mean, I personally really greatly enjoy that show. But it's like, it's so different from Succession because they're serving different ends, you know, and Succession, like, so many of those things, like, you know, Kate, when you mentioned that scene in the club when they're all alone, like, that really hit me this time around, like, that shot of the two of them in the VIP area in the club, and there's just nobody fucking around. And the only other people that you can see in the shot are these two just herbs, like, ten feet behind them, just acting like morons, and they're up there just like, oh, this is cool being rich. And it's like, yeah, you're all alone and the only other people you can see are cold, just like fucking Melvins, you know? It's like... You <laughs> yeah, know.
0: precisely. Greg is yeah. like, so we just come to this part of the club and get pay overpriced, and we watch what's happening at the club. And Tom's like, yeah! yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I- it's, it's, yeah, just, it's,
3: uh, it's, it's very good commentary on, on conspicuous consumption and sort of the ultimate just just emptiness of that. And I think we've talked about this before, but something that the show does really well and, and a way that it distinguishes itself from other shows that are about wealth and wealthy families is that um, it's realistic about the privileges and um, immense advantages that wealth affords you but it also doesn't necessarily depict all of that as aspirational which yeah. I think oh. a lot of other shows do that and it's it's not quite <laughs> an accurate portrayal of of what it's like to actually live an, an ultra wealthy lifestyle and, and I think this show um, has balanced that quite nicely just without you know minimizing the the actual material advantages of being ultra wealthy we see it but it's not shoved down our throats. And then, you know, it, it really kind of takes a delicate look at, at what what kind of dysfunctions are, you know, spring out of growing up or, you know, attaining this this level of wealth later in your life. And I, I think it's really funny that, Kate, you were talking about food as like a signifier for rich people. And, Tom is so hopped up on this exclusive pop-up restaurant with fried songbird. And uh, later in the episode, we have uh, Logan sitting in front of the TV, literally eating like Big Macs. Like it's shades of Trump there. But it just kind of goes to show you like playing a little bit on like the new money, old money perspective, even though we know Logan is not technically old money, but Logan is kind of so secure and in. In who he is and what he has and his lifestyle, that he's like, he's not going to eat a fucking fried songbird.
2: Yeah,
3: <laughs> right. The
0: other, the other thing is, I think that you know, again, just L- Logan eating alone. Although I wouldn't quite call Logan a lonely man, you know, mirrors this kind of hollowness, emptiness. This you are all alone when you're at point one zero percent, you know, richest of America, and it's um punctuated in the scene after as well when uh Kendall calls Frank you know he has no one else to call he can't call his father he can't call R- Rava you know he has no one to call but this like you know friend of his dad's to get some reassurance and and then when Shiv and Nate you know are talking about getting back together it's like or you know should we do this you know like there are voids that they still, there are voids that aren't being filled. And these are not happy people. They're not, and so like you said, it's not aspirational. It shows you just how unfulfilling probably being that rich could be.
2: Yeah, and the thing I really like about that club scene is how, and we've talked about this before, uh, the show really doesn't try to have it, you know, both ways there are no like extraneous or like leery shots of women at the club or anything like that it is purely just a scene about like look at these two jagoffs thinking they're so cool at this club um, but we mentioned uh Nate and Shiv briefly, so I guess we should pop over and check in on what's whatever the hell is going on <laughs> with Shiv this episode, um, who is once again just a kind of you know bored, uh, you know, and looking to kind of fuck around on Tom, but not really because she just kind of gets off on having power over both of these two guys at this point. It seems. You know my 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 big thought at during the Nate and Shiv plotline in this episode as my thoughts were wandering as they tend to do whenever Nate shows up is could you fix this plotline solely by recasting Nate with Reed Scott from Veep?
1: Now there's an idea. Is I is you know I was kind of zoning out when he was uh, talking at what during one scene too, and and I had this like I had to pause the show for a second to go check uh, IMDb, but like I had this like. Vivid, like I was convinced in this really vivid sense that this was Hugh Laurie's uh, fail son, <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, "How the fuck is Hugh Laurie's son such a terrible actor?" And then, and, and I got like enough down the thing. I was like, "Wait, wait, 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 wait. check to make sure he is before you keep on going down this road." So I went and I saw that he wasn't, and immediately. I don't know like I was like reassured and like a little bit more sort of like I don't know man yeah the, uh, I mean you know all, you know like joking aside I mean that it's like that that's one of those things that, 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 like him being there is sort of like the 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 boy toy it's like it's more of like the um i don't know like conventional tv show shit where it's like all right yeah we need a we need a plot line here so we're going to have oh yeah the ex boyfriend it's like but the thing you know so it's like it's more just sort of about just like a rote thing that they have to get through just because of plot reasons. But like the thing that's great about all of their banter is that it builds in that one scene. It's like, there's a, there's the rhythm of the the, the back and forth and they're just like, you know, doing all this, like, you know, witty dialogue. And then it culminates in him saying, or it's like, well, you don't want to play around with me or whatever it is. He says, and then her response is, I did play with you. You broke. And I was just like, that shit fucking rules. That line was just such a beautiful, just glimmering fucking uh, apex to that whole thing. And it, you know, kind of like it redeemed the kind of the emptiness and roteness of that whole like thing going on in the show. Just building to just that beautiful point. Was, I was just like, oh.
3: Yeah, there's I, I had to thank in my mind while I was watching this Sarah Snook for carrying these scenes and delivering them so well with such confidence because mm-hmm. I cannot stand this actor I'm, I'm sorry he's just he's unbearable when he says that he's engaged, sure he's nice I'm but yes. yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah but he's he's incredibly corny and like when he says the thing that like I'm engaged to a French doctor it's like it's like some like bullshit mad libs for like a, an impressive sounding fiance like I'm dating Must a, be nice. a Brazilian architect. It's like, shut the fuck up. You're getting married and I'm getting married in lilac season and you're not. Um, he's just such a douchebag. But all of this with Shiv. Yeah, I mean, this this definitely serves to advance what we come to know about Shiv's internal life. And, you know, we really are starting to see her intimacy issues um, rear their head in a big way. So this kind of all starts out with Shiv and Tom talking about wedding planning and tom uh, tom is very excited he's he says he's worried about the fog in lake cuomo <laughs> um and Shivs just casually kind of drops like oh well yeah i was you know i was talking to my mom and we kind of had a crappy conversation i told her we're, we might just have the wedding in london to smooth things over and tom's like what or, or england i'm sorry i don't know if it's if it's london but um and Shivs like yeah it's fine you know and and tom is like clearly very invested in this wedding and in this relationship, you know, Shiv is becomes visibly uncomfortable at a point in that scene where it's not even like you can, you can see that she's, she's really anguished. And this is when I kind of started to like think back to psychology in college and like attachment styles and, and Shiv and Tom really embody the anxious avoidant trap. So they both basically have insecure attachment styles. You know, we can see them as flawed people. And Tom is sort of more the, the anxious, has the anxious insecure attachment. And Shiv has the avoided insecure attachment. And it's very, very common for this combination to, to, to find each other and to have romantic relationships. It, they, they call it a trap because it starts off with the child and each one of them seeing in the other um, a way that they'll be protected. But as it evolves and as the intimacy develops, the avoidant person needs to start pulling away. Um, their focus tends to be more on their their ego and their accomplishments. They start to feel oppressed, and you know that sort of replicates something that went on in their childhood, whereas the the anxious person, you know, very much needs validation. They are fighting to find consistent security in relationships and so they never abandon the person we see as the episodes go on this really is the model for their relationship and and you know the avoidant person will find ways to create distance to create space to feel safe again and and shiv this so this all ends with shiv after they they get into sort of the the tiff about the wedding you know shiv is like i'm going to dc and of course she you know for her, a source of comfort to get away from that smothering intimacy is to hang out with her ex-boyfriend because that's like a risky, ego-feeding thing to do. You know, it's kind of going back and forth with him and their banter about her being the better political strategist. And those scenes play out in a really interesting way. Like you said, like they it could have been interpreted just sort of as filler, plot vehicle, but there are some really powerful moments so there's one point when they're in the hotel room and they're talking about if they're going to sleep together that night and <laughs> and what's his name throws out the idea of masturbating in separate bedrooms and saying it's, it's very modern and shifts has something that that really struck me and they kind of ended the scene right there similarly to the um, I played with you and you broke she says wouldn't it be nice to wake up in the morning and not feel like a fucking piece of shit I thought that was really interesting because Shiv kind of fancies herself as, you know, we've talked about this before as, as somewhat righteous and, you know, she's distinguished herself by working in in liberal politics and and not being involved in the family business and and thinks of herself very highly. But that right there kind of cuts to the heart of, of what you guys were talking about earlier with essentially like these people know that they're broken. They, they don't feel good. Uh, They find ways to cope. You know, primarily through their work, but also through their into their romantic relationships and 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 other other types of relationships. But um, I thought that was really striking there, and that I wasn't expecting that line, and it, it kind of just hits you, and then the scene cuts.
1: Yeah, that that very abrupt cut like made that line. You know, it's like, what well, would be like to wake me more and not feel like a fucking piece of shit? Like it made it hit so much harder the way that like the edit came almost before the line was done in a very shocking kind of way. So you're just sort of like, damn, you know, cause it's like the, the show gives you these glimpses into the inner souls of these people who you are tempted to dismiss as soulless because their actions would lead you to believe that they're soulless being, you know, capitalist masters of the universe. It's like, you cannot have a functionally intact soul and do the things that they do. But it also, the reality of it is that, you know, like the, you know, the things are, the things have a bit more nuanced, you know, that they're more, it's not just as simple as they're just these mustache-twirling villains. It's like, there is an interiority, but so much of that is just, like, corrosive, painful, just agonizing self-awareness of how bad they are. Yeah. It co- it contrasted with... Well, I don't really give a fuck, and I can drown it out with, you know, like hedonistic sex and and you know, ludicrously expensive food and all of that. But it's like the thing that makes Succession so effective is that it dares to explore that interiority. Like, I mean, I wouldn't say neutral because I mean, it obviously, disapproves, but you know, like, but it does take a look, and it doesn't just condemn. Like, it does observe. And it's, like, sometimes those are the moments where it's, like, the show is, like, yeah. Because, like, you see it is a fiction, but, like, you do get a sense of, you know, like, what's really going on in there. And you're, like, ah, rich people are fucked up, man. You know? yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> and that happens, like, four or five times in an episode. I'm, like, ah, I don't want money. I want to stay this is fucked up.
0: It <laughs> reminded me Kendall calling Frank and was, like, is this an object? After the dinner uh, with his dad, which Marsha set up I think you know because she she knows the game we all have our game as Logan says but uh she she's privy kind of to what's going on but um so in the car when he does call Frank he Frank is this objectively like that horrible you know wanting to be good but
3: they don't know how struggling. they just don't know how yeah, yeah they
0: were never yeah. taught that yeah. I mean they don't
3: know how Logan. to s- See through the lens of anyone else's experience and that's why it's so tragic because they're not completely but somewhat aware of their flaws and their sort of gaping emotional holes but they have no recourse i mean they just they do not know how to fix it and every solution that they think might fix it propels them deeper into this fuck world of Transactional relationships and standing at a at the top level of the club by yourself looking down at everybody else.
0: And I, I'd argue that Kendall is not aware of his flaws. And I think yeah. the most self-aware child actually is Roman. He may not be yeah. when it comes to sexually and relate and with Sexually, intimacy. But I think Roman has a decent sense of who he is and, and and what his motivations are and where he's lacking. And we do not see that in the other characters. We definitely see that um, pop up a few times this episode. Um, Roman being self-aware,
3: I don't know. Yeah, he doesn't have the self-righteousness, certainly, of, of the other siblings.
0: Well, I, th- I think for one, first of all he he knows how to self-deprecate right like he knows how to win people over like in the uh episode two you know when he's like i'm not so good with corporate flirting or when he's meeting with lawrence and he's like i'm dumb but i'm smart but he's not only is that self-deprecating but it's also like completely on point like he's like you know i don't have i know what to fix but i don't have the attention span to fix it like I think he has a really good sense of himself. Um, And then another example of this in this episode and where Kendall is just is clueless is after the diner scene where they talk about um, where Jerry, Frank, uh, Kendall, and Rome all get together to talk about the big takeover and they, you know, go through their lists and on their way out, Rome's like, you know, I'm not a clown, et cetera, et cetera. He, He tells Kendall, and I don't know why this has to be stressed, because Kendall should understand from the pilot that Lawrence fucking hates you, dude. He's like he fucking hates you and he likes me. Like Roman has better insight, I think, into people and how to manipulate them, whether that's knowingly or not. But but yeah, I, I don't I, I don't think that Shiv or Kendall are that self aware of their flaws. And I think that is especially Kendall and his you know, the big tragedy.
2: Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, thinking on those scenes with Shiv, I mean, you know, I think in that Adam McKay interview, it was where he said that, you know, one of the things he thought of when he was reading the pilot was like Neil Labute. And I don't know if I totally um, agree with that, but the Shiv scenes, I think especially with Nate, do feel kind of zapped in um, from like, you know, 90s, 2000s, Neil Labute plays you know just in this kind of like transgressive emotionally violent
1: way you know roman being the most self-aware of the siblings is definitely grading on a curve um but i think (laughs) it's also directly related to his not being uh, among them he's the one with the least like desire to be the king kind of you know it's like he's content to be like he you know loves uh, you know wealth and power to the degree that he is self-aware, he is aware that he is the guy behind the guy rather than the guy, you know? And Kendall wants to be king, has no fucking idea how to do it or what to do once he gets or there. Or why? Exactly.
0: And Like, and why Shiv, does he want to do it?
1: Yeah, and, and Shiv is, like, torn in multiple directions, I think, in terms of her ambitions and awareness and, you know, like, knowledge of, what she wants and what she uh, do when she gets there. But the thing about Kendall that fascinates me is that he has every imaginable privilege in the world. And yet he still manages to turn every single scheme that he concocts into a fucking Buster Keaton movie with fucking barrels, like rolling down the hill after him and him like stumbling across train tracks and like, you know, TNT exploding and shit. And it's astonishing how he can take all of those resources that he has and people actively giving him things and just manages to create nothing but disaster out of that. And it's like, it was one of the great journeys of the entire season is watching how many different ways Kendall can proactively fuck everything up. And all the while there are these just just exquisite shots of Jeremy Strong's face where terror is radiating off of him. He is so scared of everything and it just, just vom, 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 off of him. Like, it's one of the things that like, that he just conveys so powerfully in that performance is that sense of just being huddled in the corner of his own mind observing his actions in reality and just squeaking help and there's no, and he's just fucked in every imaginable way.
2: Yeah. Yeah, And the body language and the thing I love so much, especially there's a really good shot. There's a few really good shots, but there's one really good one towards the end of this episode where they play with his body language in that giant stupid coat he wears where he just looks like the world's tiniest man wearing the world's biggest coat. And is just like just like a little boy, you know. Like like I'm thinking specifically of the shot where the camera pulls back from outside the boardroom where Logan just screams at him, and he just like slowly, kind of somberly, steps backward like he's been, you know, caught with his hand in the cookie jar. Um, just looks so little boyish in this episode.
0: Yeah, well, as Br- Brendan and Gabby both know, like this show for me is all about Kendall's journey and why I really connected to the show and his you know, you talk about his always messing up. I mean, my pet theory, which is probably a lot of projection. And there's no one theory. I'm sure there are many reasons. But you know, he's searching for a love and acceptance from his father, more so than wealth, more so than power more so and it's something he can't get. And that you know, they I typically hate this quote, but if you try something over insanity is trying something over and over and getting the same result. And, you know, I feel like that's it's Lucy kicking the football like every time, you know, he want he feels like he can win his dad over. And it's just he can't and he can't learn from that either and take that piece away
3: until maybe later in this episode. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, he's just trying to play a game that he's absolutely ill-equipped for, and he he fails to recognize it over and over and over again, and it's unbelievable how he just uh, completely turns a blind eye to red flags, Stewie telling him, you know, you can't trust me, yeah, but I can trust you with the money, no, and he just kind of, like, moseys on and thinks that he has Stewie in the bag. I mean, it's unbelievable, he just... The Stewie thing is
0: insane! yeah. Yeah. And even like, I, I don't know why he searches and, you know, I don't know, this maybe doesn't matter, but why is he, he has the numbers. I don't understand why he was so desperate to reach out to Sarita and then to, you know, go to Alona with both the warnings of Roman and Frank, Roman who says, You know, there's uh, being cautious and there's being time wasters and, you know, Frank warning um, that it's not necessary in the diner. And then uh, before he takes the helicopter to Long Island, that he doesn't have the time. I, I don't I don't understand why Kendall is is going that route.
2: Well, it's an interesting question, and this is something that our friend uh, Cam raised when we were talking about this recently, is that I think he feels that this particular element of the episode is somewhat contrived. And it's an interesting question, um, you know, because, you know, this piece where specifically what we're talking about is Ken, you know, placing a call to this board member, Alona, who seems to be terminally ill in hospice care. And, you know, just making sure that she's not calling in, right? And he speaks with her daughter, and there seems to be some history there. There's some guilt that Ken has. We really don't get much context or many clues for what happened there that leads Ken to place that call. But what happens is the next morning, Alona is suddenly very alert and very determined to call in, perhaps because she's gotten the signal uh, that... Ken doesn't want her to call in, and so that requires Ken to make this uh, helicopter trip, you know, out to... I, f- I don't know exactly where they are. Does anybody more familiar with the uh, geography of New
1: York know where they're supposed to be?
3: They say I Long Island, like, came out. Long yeah,
1: Island. Supposed to be in Long Island, yeah. Long it's, Island, yeah. yeah. The, the geography of Kendall's trip from there to Wall Street is... Something that I was, like, sort of, it, it got my antennas, like, a little bit twerked, uh, like, watching the episode. Because it was, like, it takes a long-ass time to drive from rich people Long Island to downtown Manhattan, especially yeah. with the kind of traffic that's going on there. And I was, and I, it, this never occurred to me the first time I was watching the show, but when I was re-watching the episode today to just, you know, refresh myself for, for this discussion. Mm-hmm. When Kendall's in the tunnel and he's just trapped in traffic and then he gets out of the tunnel, like on foot and is like running and then walking and then somehow manages to get to the meeting before the end of the meeting. I was like, which fucking tunnel was he in? And what route was that driver taking? And like, I almost had like this, like, I don't, I don't know if any of y'all read, uh, Donald Wesley, but, um, in the, his Dortmunder, uh, books, there's this one character who's always part of the heist group that they, that they have, Who (laughs) every single conversation that he has, he has to meticulously describe the route through, like you know, New York City uh, traffic and whatever that he took to get to the thing, and it's always like two pages of shit, and it and it just warms (laughs) my very soul as a New Yorker. And it's like whenever I whenever I have like you know issues with like you know movies or TV shows, New York geography, I always think of them as Dortmunder moments, even though it's not Dortmunder (laughs) who does this in the book, but it's like. How the fuck did he get to the Battery Tunnel from Long Island? Why is he taking that? Why is he taking the long way around? Like, why is he taking the Belt Parkway to the to the Battery Tunnel when he's coming from like West End? Yeah. You know, and it was just, <laughs> you know.
0: I was thinking like, why didn't any of the other board members have problems? Like, didn't they realize the traffic? You know.
1: They well, it also highlights off that Kendall is is a is a non pareil fuck up though. <laughs> I mean, it, that Kendall was the one person, it was his master plan, yeah. and he was the only one who was late, and everybody else is like, why are you late to your own coup? You know, it's just like, you
0: know,
2: what the fuck is yeah, wrong how, with you? Dude? How are you going to be late to a coup? Yeah, I mean, they they, they established some context for, you know, why he might have been late because, or why the route might have been strange because of, you know, in addition to him coming in from Long Island, there is what appears to be some kind of terrorist attack happening or what is said to be a terrorist attack where they, they said they're closing down traffic, you know, you know, two blocks each side of the financial district, something like that. So mm-hmm. they're taking some weird route to get where they're going. Well, no, that, I had forgotten
1: about that yeah. so uh, retract. Yeah. But the Dortmunder still gold, though. You gotta...
2: <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> well, uh, no, 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 don't get me wrong. I'm very appreciative of any and all Dortmunder references on this podcast. Very supportive. Uh, but, uh, yeah, the terrorist attack for me is, like, Crucial background for this episode because, um, in addition to you know supplying this piece of sort of plot material that explains why Ken can't get where he needs to be, even though it's you know it's really ultimately his choices fucking this up for himself, it lends to this sort of apocalyptic mood that the episode has, where this thing is going completely wrong, and by the end of the episode, where Ken's ass is out on the street and the order is solidified with Logan back at the top and the coup ending in disaster. Um, you know, all of a sudden it's very up in the air as to what this show looks like for the next four episodes. And that's why this episode has loomed so large for me is just sort of the atmosphere that it creates in those like last 10, 15 minutes where Ken is scrambling and then sort of walking out shell shocked. Um, because you know, Set aside that after that, the next four episodes are, you know, the best of the season. And the show really, I think, catapults up to another level after that. Um, But it's this it's a very sort of dark, gloomy mood that sets in um, with this sort of greater threat of violence in the background.
1: Well, and it was also the escalation of the entire season to this point was building to the climax of the no confidence vote. And it was interesting watching this episode out of that context because I didn't also watch the first five, which I, you know, I wanted to, but you know, ultimately did not at the time. Um, and I was wondering whether that sense of the build was going to, you know, carry over without the kind of you know the track the first five episodes laid to get there and it was remarkable that it was all still there like it's like you pick right up at the exact moment in the escalation and go to the top and it's just as you know nerve-wracking and thrilling and there was like, like you were saying you know it was like this is what the show had felt like it was all about it was about the the literal succession of the you know the the, the you know who was controlling the, the company and then seeing it sort of the false uh ending of no it just ended in total disaster and then where does the show go from there and that's the thing yeah like you're saying that the last four episodes of the show just keep on going that was one of i mean that was the moment when i I think i realized that i really loved the show was it was like oh you thought we were done (laughs)
0: <laughs> My heart.
1: It's got this extra. <laughs> it's got this extra
2: thing up its sleeve you didn't expect. Oh right? hell
1: yeah!
0: Yeah, I definitely think like of this series and or, or of this season into uh, you know the first half and the second half. And I, you know, the first half I feel like it's more like we're watching like these rich people in a snow globe or whatever, and then it's more experiential like throughout the rest of it. There's you know, empathy there, we care more. The first the first part of the show we're just watching these people and learning and then they hit a home run and really earn the second half of the show and and why it's so brilliant.
2: Yeah, and there's a and there's a particular, you know, in addition to the terrorist attack, which sets, you know, the strange mood this episode has in the second half and the pull that sets over it. There's a way that sort of the characters kind of talk about you know, what's happening here, this sort of weird revolutionary language. I think, Gabby, we were talking about this um, before we recorded, right?
3: Yeah, I mean, we've talked about it before, too, in, in, in other episodes, that the Roy's, particularly the Roy kids, and particularly Ken and Shiv, and in this episode, Tom, quite a bit, have a tendency to use revolutionary language in the way that they talk about themselves and their endeavors, and ambitions which is you know rather ironic because they're stuck in this hyper capitalist shit show where um you know it's it's just a matter of you know how many more billions they can tack to the company and, and 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 elevating their status and whatnot I mean there's nothing revolutionary about it at all but Shiv actually has a funny line that's a Handmaid's Tale reference, but it still tracks if you didn't read or watch The Handmaid's Tale, where she says uh, what's going on in the People's Republic of Gil Evis, and <laughs> we'll, we'll get to uh, we'll get to Gil Evis, I guess, next next episode, but...
2: That's very good. I didn't catch that.
3: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs>
1: so, another example of just how deft the writing is to it. it just slide something like that in, just like, oh, I've seen that nothing.
3: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's... it's- <laughs> It's so impressive, yeah. And and episode, you know, we we're sort of set up for this. In their eyes, is a is a re- especially in Kendall's eyes, is a revolutionary battle. But it's it's essentially a civil war. I mean, like I said, there's nothing yeah actually revolutionary about it. And I mean, we could talk a little bit about Gil Evis if we want. But you know, he's supposed to be sort of this Bernie type character. And then um, the song at the end, we'll, we'll get into that, and that sort of has a direct um relevance to actual sort of labor and progressivism and, and revolution, but it's it's just so funny the way the characters throw out um these lines. Like during the dinner between Greg and Tom, when Greg is like, Yeah, my my I had dinner with my grandpa before and Tom's like, "What's your grandpa in town for?" And he's like, "There's going to be a vote of no confidence against Logan again." Greg ahead of the curve, Isn't <laughs> 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 Tom like, "What?" And um, you know, Tom calls Ken to give him the heads up, and he comes back to the table, and he's all hopped up, and he's like, "It's the storming of the Bastille, uh, the troops are taking Saddam's palace, and and <laughs> it's you know, let us eat cake." And then later on, after the vote, Shiv is like. You know, when she finally gets wave of of what's happened, um, you know, she's like the rebels are. The rebels are getting t- shot in the town square. And Greg's
2: line, and Greg's line, of course, is "Are we the rebels?" Yeah. Uh, which, <laughs> which is fantastic. And by the way, you know, the troops taking Saddam pal- Saddam's palace uh, famously went great after that. Uh, of
1: course, oh so
2: yeah, so, a maneuver that just ended spectacularly well for everybody involved.
1: Yeah, it was a happy ending. Orchestral music played. Somebody kissed.
2: Yeah, yeah. It was like the end. It was like the the end of Return of the Jedi, where like the uh, yeah, <laughs> the, exactly. the special edition of Return of the Jedi, where the the CGI like Palpatine statue falls or whatever.
1: Yeah, nineteen years later, Harry Potter, all was well.
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh but yeah I mean in this and in this episode you know they you know what we were talking about is you know the song at the end of the episode the song the episode is named for is uh is is, is which side are you on this great I yeah, believe it's
1: featuring the rules yeah
2: yeah it's from uh you can confirm this for me I hope Danny but this it's this song features in uh, uh Harlan County right
1: Yeah well it's got a specific textual reference to Harlan County in it but it's in the movie Harlan County USA right yeah, I think so. Yeah, I was just double checking because I could, because my brain damage uh, made me forget it was Pete Seeger. Yeah, but you know, Pete Seeger, yeah. legend, I- fucking ace, absolute I- boy. Right, it's the, it's the Pete yeah. Seeger
2: version. The episode is named for it, you know. And we were talking before we recorded uh, Kate about a particular writer who did a recap of the show who was like very incensed that they used this song, thinking that it was cheapening it somehow. Or I'm not really sure. Um, but I think the way that the the show uses it is, you know, I think it's it's both ironic and it has like a very specific meaning. As to what's kind of going on because this this song plays over the final moments starting in this this really great uh, scene where Logan gets a call back from the president and deliberately makes him wait on hold before picking up the phone and then it cuts to uh, Kendall like a, uh, like we said before shell-shocked staggering out in the, into the streets of New York and this just really haunting final shot where there is just smoke or steam billowing behind him you know possibly the site of this terrorist attack they're talking about and he just wanders out into the crosswalk and turns to face the camera and has this sort of dry laugh as it cuts to black and this song is playing and i think it means a couple i think it means a couple of things i mean one there's like i said i think there is this sort of ironic usage where the song is deliberately about these sort of mine workers protests, it's about this real sort of working class struggle, this real sort of revolutionary struggle that is a deliberate counterpoint to the fairly minor overall machinations that are taking place in that boardroom, you know, this, these cosmetic changes that Ken wants to make to the company so it's, it's, it's sort of ironic in that way but I think what it also means the the second meaning that speaks deeply to what's happening to the characters is that that song speaks to the concept of solidarity, the concept of having a real sort of united struggle with workers who have the same interests as you against the management class against the class of the bosses. And in that room, in that boardroom, there is no concept of solidarity whatsoever and can, uh, completely fails to, you know, foment that at all, and that's why he loses. Is these people are that he's expecting to vote for him are voting out of nothing except pure self interest, and that's why he fails. And that's why I love that. Sh- <laughs> that's the moment where everything comes down to Roman and the look across Karen Culkin's face is pure panic and self interest as it's he's, like trying he's trying to, to shrink out. into
1: himself. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: <laughs> It yeah. is abs- It's it's one of my favorite bits of acting on the show, um, where he's you know he just he just starts mumbling. I think uh, I think it's a tough one. It's a
1: tough one. <laughs> <laughs> that was so fucking awesome. He's there, just ah. like they're gonna make me make a decision. Shit, I'm supposed to go along with other people. That's what I do. <laughs> You're asking me to express an individually held take.
0: No, yeah. and what is it that Logan yeah. says to him, Romulus? Either be familiar bit- <laughs> or pit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Because R- Roman, for his credit and for all of his, you know, shrinkiness, he did raise his hand to vote for Kendall. It just didn't matter because Kendall wasn't there, and Logan was to, you know, interpret it.
2: Yeah, in his in fairness, he made a decision. He just changed his mind as soon as it seemed like that would get him in trouble. Uh, well, he so
1: held he, in that progression, he held every possible position that it was to have on the vote like at first he <laughs> voted for it and then he abstained and then his father bullied him into voting with him and it was just amazing to watch him just play out that entire range within the span of like a couple of seconds and there was no uh, like it, there, it, there was no labor like you know the uh, uh, hamming it up a uh, vamping with it it was just he just was like I, 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 uh, it, and, and in just like blurting out every possible response to the thing, that is his nature because it's like he does what's expedient. You know, it's right. like that's. And even
3: after that, Logan kind of is like, at, at, when that scene sort of uh, settles down and, and they're you know, in the aftermath of it. And Logan looks at Roman and he's like, what the hell am I going to do with you? And he's like, I don't know, dad. You know, So that kind of goes back to, or Roman really does have a sense of awareness about himself and his, his, how ineffectual he is and just not having any idea of where he belongs. But yeah, going back to the, to the idea of solidarity and, and loyalties and, and the way that throughout the episode Ken kind of takes for granted. Um, so many of these votes um i mean when they're at the diner with jerry and frank and jerry's like you know these three-year-old guard they'll go logan and ken's like yeah well sure but i mean you know like as like it's just the hubris is unbelievable and i don't know if he's just in, like so naive so arrogant i mean I, I i do genuinely think in his mind like he really does believe that he's doing this for his father like he says you know i'm doing this it's more out of sorrow than anger i think he thinks he's doing the best thing for the company and that everybody else will see that and it's interesting because jerry plays her cards right as usual and um you know even though she was on board in the beginning when she sees how it's unfolding she's like hell no i'm not going along with this and i think it's interesting that the only person that stays loyal to ken and i've brought this up before is frank um, and it's not just out of self interest, because Frank didn't have to raise his hand. Um, you know, he saw how it was going down. He didn't have to raise his hand. He did what he could to stall the meeting. You know, he's really the only one that kind of has Ken's back. And I mean, yes, some of it I think is, is self motivated. And you know, he has issues with Logan, and he might actually believe Logan is, is just not good for the company. But you know, I, I think he really is is looking out for Ken. But um that's just my fondness for for Peter Freeman and, and that character.
2: Yeah, it's a really it's a really interesting moment, you know, cuz you're right. I mean, in that room for something to happen, you know, it all comes down to who's going to raise their hand first. And yeah, Frank takes that bullet. He absolutely does. And as much as I think the show sort of signals some different ways about, you know, how sort of financially motivated Frank is, and of course, all these relationships are on this sliding scale where they're corrupted by power and money, and vice versa. Um, you know, he he does genuinely do something, do the only thing that is sort of courageous in that episode, in raising his hand first.
1: And and when you see what that gets him, it like you know highlights uh, without belaboring the point. One of the things that the show shows over and over again over the course of the season, which is that, you know, acting out of some sense of, you know, like moral obligation to, you know, standards of right and wrong inevitably leads to just getting fucked and acting out of the pure interest of wealth and power and self-interest you, you succeed over and over again. It's, it's you know a, a demonstration of the kind of you know monstrous code that you have to live by to succeed in that kind of environment, and and it's it, it, it would be I, I think like a little insufferable if the show like was more strident and more overt about making that point, but it keeps. Every time that that point is reinforced over the course of the season, there's a muted element to it. There's like a, an inferential way that you have to approach each of those to, to see that that's, you know, what, uh, what's going on. And that adds to the effectiveness of making the point. And I think that that's one of the reasons why, you know, people like us who exist outside that kind of way of life. Look at this show and are, you know, intrigued and horrified by it because it's just like, what the fuck are you doing with your lives? You live in this way. And, you know, and the answer to that would just be like, well, we have all the money. That's why we do this, you know, so we win. And I mean, it's just it's really just a matter of how you read it, really, which ties back to something that I wanted to uh, uh, mention in terms of the way that the song, "Who's which of 1 w- was used, was, I don't know whether this is just me, but like, with closing credits in, especially TV shows, but also, like, movies to an extent, closing credit songs seem to me sometimes to exist outside the text of the the episode or the, the film or whatever, and that it's almost like, cause it's like, okay, it's over, and we're sort of like, you know, playing you out back to real life again and it's sort of in this episode in particular it felt like one of the few times that the show overtly comments on what is portraying because for the most part it's just like it's content to dramatize and it doesn't overtly comment too often but it felt like using that song felt like a step back and a rare moment when the show is commenting on just like how sick and fucking depraved all of this is by just being like look we're all at this tier right let's let pete say it for us
2: because well it's it's yeah. the adam mckay moment right that's that's what i thought of it as is it's this yeah is- it, it reads to me like the sort of Adam McKay things sort of reach in and say, everybody knows what Adam McKay's politics are. He's got this instinct to sort of do the edutainment thing where he wants to sort of educate people at the same time. Uh, and that seemed to be kind of probably why the initial reason that song was inserted, but it seemed to me to speak to something deeper.
3: Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. But I mean, it's
1: obviously used to it multiple things, which is is the original
3: point. That's what makes it, yeah. I mean, it's such a brilliant choice. I I had never heard that song or or I didn't um, know any of the, the history behind it. But when I first watched the episode and, you know, the song started and I listened to the lyrics, like, I was already kind of just shaken from the end of the episode. But in that moment i was like this show is fucking brilliant um because as you listen to those lyrics you have to really at this point not understand succession and what it's doing if you think if you're taking that too literally and saying oh you know this is this is cheapening uh worker worker struggle like that is clearly not it's this is clearly not supposed to be some sort of symbol of an actual revolutionary struggle um if anything it's it's almost mocking ken and the other characters by extension in the belief that they are engaged in something revolutionary if you get succession and and it clicks for you and and then then that song i mean it it you couldn't have possibly ended that episode on a more powerful note
0: one of the things that I took away, um, on like my 10th viewing of this episode and my obsession with why Ken lost, which is probably fairly simple. Um, you know, I questioned, what he have, what would he have had the votes? Had he been in the room? Had Logan not been in there? It ultimately doesn't matter, but, um, you know, he was in a civil war. One of you guys mentioned that at, uh, a few minutes back and Kendall did not view it as a civil war. And that was one of the major problems is he considered his dad an alliance throughout this whole thing. And, you know, the, which side are you on? And I listened to a few remit rap remixes of it, which are great to Quali. quality during the
3: Mike yeah. Brown episode <laughs>
0: and, and, No, I'm not. Do,
3: the, does, do they change? Did he change the lyrics, or does he? Still yeah, talk he has Jh Blair.
0: No, they sample it. It's so good. And then the
3: other one is Rebel
0: Diaz featuring Dead Prez. Okay, but uh, they're like we're gonna if you want- we're gonna
2: play that in this episode. Send yeah. me that track. We're so gonna that's, like, the, that's the closing. That's the closing uh, <laughs> outro music.
0: If you ain't with us, you're against us. You know, very I rap yeah. War, but. Who will stand to defend us? And you need to get off the fence, right? And so, like, I kind of feel like in that moment, maybe, because when he does a spiel, when Ken is trying to sell himself on the vote of no confidence while walking down the streets of Manhattan, you know, he's I love my father. I worship the ground he he walks on, et cetera, et cetera. And I think maybe he realizes they can't be on the same side right like he has to approach this differently and they aren't allies and i think he kind of comes to recognition or a little bit of understanding at the at the end of the episode and i don't know maybe that's a cheap read of the song you know because of all the labor issues but i don't know it, it really hit home this idea of you're on one side or another, and you know that go- that's the theme throughout the entire show. The game, you know, they play the game. And the pilot, they play a game. In Thanksgiving, Shiv and Nate and politics, you know, winners and losers. I don't know. I just feel like there's this uh, tension between these different sides, and it does go back to the rich and the poor in terms of they're not on the same side. You know, I think there's some commentary happening there that I can't quite articulate. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of ways to read yeah uh, the song, cho- but it was an excellent song choice. When it I is. first watched the episode, I was stunned. Now I can't watch the ep- any episodes without like overthinking everything. But I was like completely stunned. I did have a moment of is this too on the nose? But you know, looking into the history of it and. Uh, it's not it's it it was it's a beautiful ending and a great way to start off the second half of the season
3: yeah i mean i think the whole episode is kind of suffused with this like this tension and this adversarial anxiety like there's small moments to sort of like reinforce that uncertainty like even when marcia is um talking to ken on the phone asking him to come over and he's like why and she's like is it a bad time do you have plans and then Logan's saying, you know, oh, Marsha's got a game. Everybody's got a game. And Ken is, like, so visibly uncomfortable. And you don't really know, like, do they know what's going on? You know, and it's sort of like you guys were talking about earlier with the, the terrorism threat. Like, there is definitely this, like, dark cloud looming over this episode. And I think in the boardroom um, during the vote, just like how Frank kind of set the tone for Ken's side... I think Stewie, by raising his hand and ultimately abstaining and saying, you know, I think this is a family matter, you know, I think that really kind of is like the beginning of the end of the vote there. Again, it's something that that Ken took for granted and never should have relied on, but it's possible, had Ken been in the room, that Stewie and Lawrence, who probably were the two that ultimately killed this for Ken, um, well, you and two, I guess, you know, for them, uh, I, I think not Ken not being in the room and sort of just Logan's presence as this overbearing and powerful and and you know he he kind of puts the fear of God in you. And I think by saying, "Oh, this is you know this is a family matter. This is personal." It probably just kills Ken inside because for him, this is business. You know, he's doing this for for the for the company, but it really is you know, all part of this civil war. It's familial. There is no revolution.
0: The one other thing I just wanted to mention about th- this episode, and it's, uh, an ongoing theme again with throughout the show, but is this idea of can't, can people change and can institutions change? And I find it really, it really had, it was interesting. Um, because when Shiv's talking with Tom about Joyce and whether or not she should stay with her candidate Joyce, she says, Well, I know one thing for sure people don't change. Okay, cut to like 20 minutes later, and she's having dinner with Nate in a restaurant, and he's like, Wow, this has really changed. And Shiv's response is, Everything changes. I mean, we've changed. And, you know, I think. Ken's journey through, throughout the next few episodes is really, again, another question of like, can people change? This is kind of a little bit of a different direction, but like, he has these technocratic business like, you know, or business school like ideas of how to chip away and like, you know, tweak the The company, which I again can can a I don't know if I said this can an institution change like w- Waste Our Royco and I think that's another idea that's explored and also speaks to capitalism as well. Like, can we make these slow little changes and actually uh, uproot our culture, or is that just at not feasible? And we need revolution. <laughs> indeed,
1: indeed. No, I mean the thing that. I think that when people, you know, just flatly declare that people don't change is that what uh, what I really think that they mean by that is that there are certain ways in which people's essence is fixed, but there are many ways in which people do change. And I think that and it's not as simple as drawing a distinction between like superficial change versus fundamental change, because there are certain ways in which people can change fundamentally. Most change is superficial, but, you know, it's like I I, I couldn't off the top of my head think of a kind of fundamental change that is possible. But I mean, it's like, take addiction, you know, it's like I at various times not to, you know, get into any melodrama or anything like that. Like, I I have had my struggles with addiction over
3: you're in good company
1: (laughs) Uh, yeah you know and so just as as that you know like i from my own experiences with that like i know that when you are in the throes your life is defined by you know obtaining and consuming the thing that you're doing and then when you manage to kick you know once you get past the you know kind of like transition period when you know you could swing back you know that isn't a governing central principle of your life anymore. And I I couldn't really, you know, say whether that is a superficial or a fundamental change, but I mean, it feels pretty fundamental because it's like, there's a difference between the way that you are when your entire existence is oriented on copying as opposed to when it isn't. Now it's like, you have the same kinds of fixations on things. Hopefully come away with that with self-awareness of knowing it's like, Oh, I'm, uh, you know, like, uh, you know, completely subsumed by obsession with a new thing. This is because I'm the kind of person who gets hooked on things. But resisting that, I think, is the ability to resist that rather than succumb to it. Is you know, it's like, but this is, I'm, I'm kind of, you know, like getting off on a tangent with this, but, um,
0: episode I, I,
3: seven but, stuff. Yeah, but I mean the
0: point. Yeah, it's totally relevant to the series. Yeah, and that's
3: why they probably put the, I mean, I think that's why they put the family therapy episode next. I mean, it just Ugh. it just tracks so well. And I do think people can, can fundamentally change. I think it takes a lot of work as someone who's uh, done, uh, pretty much been in therapy for most of my life. Um, I know that in certain ways you can fundamentally change. I, I mean, I've seen people much older than me, much more, uh, um, you know, sort of... Uh, intractable in their belief systems change um but it takes a lot of work it takes a lot of commitment um i think in theory everybody except for maybe the small portion of the population who are psychopaths um can change but in a practical matter i mean you have to be you, the, you have to be committed to change. I mean, it's not something that just happens organically. I, I, I don't think people fundamentally organically change. Um, you actively have to, to, to work at it.
0: Yeah, That's I exactly apologize.
1: It. Stating that people can't change is stating the fact that I don't want to.
0: And this kind of feels like a Sopranos discussion, so I apologize. I was more thinking in line of, can Kendall change and his trap? So
3: uh, he I can, but will he? <laughs> no, well,
0: well, right, and and anyways, um. So I'm sorry for <laughs> that digression, but I think you guys offered a lot of really good insight, and I agree with it.
2: Yeah, not at all. I think, um, you know, I think I'm thinking about what um Jeremy Manjo said about The Sopranos recently, which was that it was about the bullshit epiphanies, right? About the <laughs> sort of the sort of small little waking life moments you have where you know like oh i've suddenly you know i get it now you know the scene at the at that at the great the end of that great surprise episode where tony is high as fuck in the desert and he screams i get it you know And you don't know what he gets uh but the whole show is about you know these these epiphanies he has in therapy these little moments that you know are You know, ways that you could possibly change your life, but what they actually allow you to do is to feel a little bit better for a little while, and then you continue being the same person. And uh, Succession is a show that I think is thematically and structurally similar to The Sopranos in a lot of ways, and then it's about people who are kind of trapped by these structural forces, and they are the way they are because of these forces, and there are sort of glimmers of self-awareness they can have, but they'll never fully break out of it and so as monstrous as they are that sort of fact of being trapped in a way is what makes them sympathetic Uh, but that's what i think of in connection to what we're talking about
3: we sort of got off off tangent um talking about the vote and um that incredible scene so i don't know if anybody wanted to brendan or danny if you guys wanted to add your thoughts about that if ken was in the room or you know how it went down well i think The way that,
1: uh, you know, and not to lapse again into, you know, sort of immutability and fate, you know, after having, you know, offered the idea that people can change fundamentally or, you know, like whatever. But, like, I don't think that there is a conceivable reality (laughs) where Kendall ever is in the room. That the way that Succession is, of course Ah. he's not in the room. Of course he's caught in traffic. That's who he is. He is, like, he's not good at this shit. You know, and it's not even like that he's actively incompetent or anything like that. It's a combination of like him not knowing who he is or having a really quiet sense of what he wants. It's a combination of that and the fact that the universe is just like, you know, it. it's I I, I don't know, because it's like there, there are so many fucked up paradoxes with Kendall. Like he wants his father to love him. But the only way that his father's ever going to love him is if he's the kind of person who doesn't give a shit whether his father loves him or not. Like, he's had every single imaginable privilege conferred onto him, and yet the universe is just, like, standing in his path at every moment, a thwart is saying, stop. And I think that it's, like, I I, I don't know whether it's, like, that's an aspect of Kendall that is going to build to anything, but I definitely think that it's an essential aspect of who he is is that he just he is this constant paradox and he is a paradox that's sort of like Voltron out of other paradoxes. Make of that what you will. But and and I don't know whether that is an entry point or a dead end with him or maybe it's both because it's another paradox. But those are my Kindle thoughts uh
2: in the end uh kendall a land of contrasts <laughs>
1: <laughs> there you go
2: yeah and i think um i think with next week's episode with austerlitz episode seven we'll have even more to delve into into uh these kids uh terrible fucked up brains uh <laughs> and what's <laughs> and what's going on with them
3: when um greg is being taken out on a date by tom and He's shocked and he goes I, I thought you were going to say you're going to take me out and beat the shit yeah. out of me um, we don't have to put that in but
1: just- <laughs> yeah but man Tom is something what, what else am- man Tom is so my guy cause it's like he every single time he's around somebody who's more powerful than he is he's just in this perpetual state of shitting himself and the <laughs> one time that he has when he's around somebody who's less powerful than him he, he identifies Greg and he's like This is who I can just unleash all of my fucking frustration out of just, you know, all the things that I can't say to any of these people who are more powerful than me. I'm just going to take this guy and I'm just going to just, like, you know, abuse the shit out of him. And it's like, yeah, Greg finally, like, cuts onto that and he finally, like, gets it up enough to be like, thought you were going to beat the shit out of me. It's like acknowledging it's like (laughs) this is what you're doing. And it's like, yeah, oh man, th- those, th- those two, they're quite a team And
3: Greg's out. not yeah. even aware of sort of like the leverage that he has over Tom. I mean, he is yeah. more of a member of the family than Tom is. Um, you know, he gets the scoop from his grandpa first about the vote, about other, um, in one of the other episodes, I think in Lifeboats, when uh, Greg's like to Tom, he's like, oh, you know, you know, Logan's back and. And Tom kind of has to pretend that he already knew. Um, <laughs> so, so even in that, I mean, I think it's we've talked about this a lot with with cousin Greg and and where they position him at the end of the season. That he's not just sort of a bumbling oaf. Um, he is certainly comic relief and a bit silly, but um, there's definitely a, a an aspect of him where he's he's very watchful. He he knows what's going on. He's he's picking things up. He's absorbing. Um, and he's you know. Laying the groundwork for, for himself, and, and Uncle Ewan tells him in this episode to uh, paddle his own canoe. <laughs> I mean, he has his almost... own
0: game to be Logan for a minute. Yeah.
1: Oh, I was uh, going to say that. I mean, this is more of just like a, a, a random observation, but it's like I could see in a couple seasons' time, like Greg being a major player in the whole power game because. Absolutely. 'Cause he starts out and you're just like, Oh, yeah. this guy's the comic relief, oh he's that and then you put it's like, now he's really the audience surrogate because the shit that he doesn't understand about this world is really natural shit to not understand if you're a normal person, you know? So it's like none of the stuff that he like doesn't understand is stuff that like a non psychopath should know. But, like, over time, you can see him, like, as he grows in understanding of uh, everything that's going on, he's like, wait a minute, I'm the only person with a non-broken brain in this motherfucker. I that I can leverage that to my advantage. And then everybody else is just, like, off, you know, like, you know, family drama-ing uh, themselves into a, you know, just, like, Grey Gardens, and, and then Greg is the guy who fucking, you know emerges
3: triumphant <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sorry
0: yeah no greg knows what's going on i think he's really hip quite savvy and i mean think of him telling jerry about um the press conference tom was thinking of having you know where he was going to divulge all the shit information about um, the rapes, murders, the bad ones uh, uh, that was going on with the cruise cruise lines. I mean, I think I've always thought that Greg, he's going to be a player. I mean, and especially yeah. how they end, end the season. Um, I mean, I think,
3: I think to his advantage also kind of, it's a good point that you made, Danny, that he's out of this world. And so he, he doesn't have a fundamentally broken brain the way the rest of these people do that to his advantage, um, he he has the capacity for empathy. I mean, he he can see through uh, the the lens of other people's experiences in ways that these ultra rich people cannot, um, and that's ultimately going to be an advantage for him. And it's kind of funny because so many like so much uh, of the consultant world now and business is all about like teaching emotional intelligence and empathy in the workplace because it it truly is an advantage. I mean, if you're not emotionally intelligent, there's ways that you're just you're just gonna Struggle. And I mean, we see that plain and simple with these characters, especially Ken. He's just has no self awareness.
0: Okay. The, so I just want to say one of my favorite and maybe not favorite, but most memorable scenes of the entire series happens this episode. And it's the Lawrence dinner with Roman. And the speech about uh, Roman says, you know, I went into a. <laughs> I went into a bookshop the other day and I couldn't stop laughing. And he just goes on about, you know, how much space it took up and all this stuff. And so uh, he's trying to sell Lawrence, of course, on his, on siding with him in the future and new media and pivoting to video and all that shit. And, uh, you know, so so he goes there, but um, so Lawrence, Lawrence asked you, you think we're going to be post literate and, uh, Roman just says, no, I ju- we're just going to want tiny fucking feed me fucking morsels. You know, the tiny fucking morsels from groovy hubs. And I don't know why that it just was totally so funny. And I just really enjoyed that scene. And
3: Colkin killed it as usual. That's Roman's own version of revolutionary language. <laughs> yeah, totally.
0: Yeah.
1: He's, he's basically saying it's like, I want Twitter. You know, he's like, I want life to be. Twitter. Yeah. And of everybody on that show, he's the one who would kill it the most on on the beloved hell site. <coughs> yeah. Hey, there's he an idea. The Imagine argument. Roman Roy as a as a poster. Just like it would be the most appalling and mesmerizing fucking thing. All right, and we are on
3: Twitter in the in the hospital <laughs> scene. We know that he tweets.
1: Oh yeah.
2: Oh yeah.
3: Roman is Roman oh, is in.
2: Roman is extremely online. I'm pretty sure we know this. He makes references to online shit. Oh, um, uh, yeah. Yeah, so our, we're pivoting our uh, campaign from HBO, let us run the official Succession Twitter account to HBO, let us run Roman's Twitter account specifically. He <laughs> <Yes>. uh, <laughs> And I think that about does it for, for episode six. We are looking forward next time to talking about episode seven. Osterlitz, where I think it will be uh, just the three of us in a in a very special episode. But we were so thrilled to have Danny join us for this. Danny, thank you so much for coming on, man.
1: Ah, uh, it was a pleasure. It was great to talk to all three of you. Thanks.
0: Thanks so much, Come back Andy. for season two. Yeah. Oh hell yeah! <laughs> That's
1: right. We'll be recording
2: at midnight after it airs. from the astral plane oh yeah (laughs) (laughs) alright gang cheers we'll talk next time
1: See, before I draw the line, let me welcome you close To all the folks who knew Obama, sold the people a hopes, Gave the money to suckers while our community's still poor Withdrew the troops but started another war Colonizing, terrorizing, creating the oil crisis So they can make a killer, no food and gas prices Prisons
3: are spitter, they trying to lock up the future Militarized borders...